Well, good morning, everyone. We're excited to continue with our series this morning. This series is all about that in order to follow Jesus, we have to order our lives around three goals. Now, if you have been with us the past three weeks, the first week we kind of introduced it, the second week we gave the first way to order our lives, and last week we gave the second way. Who remembers what number one is? The first thing we do to follow Jesus. B. Yeah. Oh, come on, guys. Am I doing that bad? Okay. Be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. And then number two, does anyone know the next one? Become become like Jesus. Excellent. And then today is do what Jesus did. So we order our lives around three goals, which is be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And about this time, some of you are noticing on your message notes that it says... Becomes nodding at me. That says, become like Jesus. Sorry, I changed everything else on the notes except I forgot to change the sermon title from last week. You can scratch it out. The actual sermon title is Do What Jesus Did. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We want to order our lives around these things to be actual followers of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus, saying I'm a Christian, is not just I go to church on Christmas and Easter. I go to church every now and then. Sometimes I dust off my Bible or open the app, even though it has to reinstall because it's been so long since I used it. It's more than that. It's more than those things. It's ordering our entire lives around these three goals, around these three goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. That's what it truly means to follow Jesus. So today, you're going to buckle in and hang with me because we got a lot of Bible to read today. So we're going to be reading a lot about, you can't hate me because it's Bible, okay? I'm just reading what Jesus said and did, okay? So I'm going to give you a second here to open up your Bibles. If you have them with you, hard copy Bible, app on your phone, anything like that. It'll also be on the screen, but it might be helpful because we're going through so much Bible to have it right in front of you if possible. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 is where we're going to start. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so it's about a third to, or a the last third-ish of the Bible is where you're going to open it up to. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Starting in verse 18. It says this, One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Most verses were, or translations we're familiar with say, I will make you fishers of men. Now that's not just like a cute cliche phrase that Jesus used. Oh, you catch fish, now we're going to catch people. That wasn't really what he was getting. It was actually a figure of speech in the Hebrew culture at the time that meant I am going to make you an excellent teacher that grabs the minds of others. Like I am, is basically what he's saying. Come follow me, and you'll become a teacher that grabs hearts and minds of people like what I am, like who I am. Then he says, a little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. He called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving behind the boat and their father behind. So they're leaving behind their jobs their physical possessions, their property, and their families, just dropping everything and immediately going. Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. I want to pause here just for a little nugget. 
we typically say, well, the gospel, you hear the word gospel, it means good news. So depending on your translation, it'll either say announcing the good news or announcing the gospel. Notice if you grew up and you like had like the little color bead bracelets that tell the gospel story, you know, like if we started off white in the Garden of Eden and then I can't remember, I'm butchering it. Everyone who's in kids ministry knows that it doesn't start out with white. But anyway, it tells the gospel of, you know, we are sinners. We were created to be with God, but we're sinners. We messed it up. Jesus washed us clean when he died on the cross and now we get to live forever with him in eternity, right? That's what we always say the gospel is. But Jesus is announcing the gospel before he ever died or rose again. Is that interesting to anyone else besides me? He hasn't died and rose again yet, and he's announcing the gospel. He's announcing the gospel of the kingdom, that his kingdom is here, and the good news happened even before he went to the cross and died and rose again. Now, that kind of is a cherry on top of everything and is like the crux of our faith, but there's more to it than Jesus died and rose again for our sin. It's the kingdom life that he has on offer for us here. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about following Jesus. It's this kingdom life that he offers each and every one of us. So he's announcing the good news about the kingdom and he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. So he's reaching this huge, I mean, this is before social media, before telephones, before posting your status and checking into locations. And people from other nations and regions in a geographical location, the word is traveling so fast and they are traveling to follow him. One day he saw the crowds gathering. Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. And this is what sets the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I asked you a few weeks ago to read it. If you got a chance to read it, Amazing. I hope it really spoke to you. Read it in a couple different translations if you're like, I don't know what this means here or there. Read it in a couple different versions. Sometimes a different uh, turn of phrase will make more sense. If you didn't get a chance to read it, read it. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, this is the way to live the kingdom life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not all butterflies and roses. It's when this happens, the good or the bad, when you have an enemy, because you will, when you go through trials, because you will, when you get taken advantage of, because you will, this is what you do. He's not saying all of the bad stuff will go away. He's saying when you come across this, this is how we go about it in the kingdom life. This is what the kingdom says to you about it. This is the way Jesus lives. So we're going to go down then to Matthew chapter 8. So we're kind of wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 is where we're going to pick back up. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. One of the teachers of religious law said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So he wants to become a disciple, one of the religious leaders that Jesus was notorious for really dissing and bashing quite a bit. He called them out on their corruption all the time. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of God has no place to even lay his head. He's like, the animals 
are more or less homeless than I am. I am more homeless than animals. I do not have a home. I just hope someone opens up their home to me for the night or I camp out with a rock for a pillow. That is my life. So he's basically saying, you know, this person's really eager, eager, eager. And then Jesus is like, hold up. This is really the cost. This is really what it means to follow me. This is really what the sacrifice is going to be. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Now what he's saying is there are other people. So there's the one who's really eager to join but didn't count the cost. Then there's the ones that kind of drag in their feet. They have all the excuses. Well, I will go all in on Jesus when... When this season of my life, and I don't have a two-year-old on me all the time and expecting another one and a preteen who's starting to get a little attitude, whenever I, I'm going to wait for, you know, this season of life to be done. And then I will go all in on Jesus. He understands. Like, I don't have to be all in right now. I'll go all in later. Or I'll go all in when I'm retired. Or I'll go all in when this health problem is over. Or whatever the case may be. We're dragging our feet a little bit. We have excuses. And then we'll skip down to Matthew 9, verse 9. Just the next chapter there. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his, he's the author of this book that we're reading. So this is Matthew's perspective on his own story. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Pause. Tax collectors were the scum of the Jewish culture. Tax collectors basically were outcasted or some, they probably had some sort of parent or dad wound or trauma from growing up in the family or culture that they did. And they turned their back against their culture. They turned their back against their people. And it was all about like this close-knit people of God, Israelite, Jewish culture, all of that. And they turned their back and said, no, I'm going to work for the Roman government that's occupying our land which we have a very hard idea of knowing that because we have not been occupied by anyone. We're a sovereign land, right? We haven't been occupied by an evil empire that is oppressing us. So we, he, he's saying that he's going to start overtaxing, pulling taxes, cheating, lying, stealing for the oppressors, for the occupying government. <coughs> and Jesus comes up to him, the scum, and says, follow me and be my disciple. Jesus said to him, so Matthew got up and followed him. Just like that. He left it all and got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. Along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Not just sinners, disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, those are the religious leaders. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? It's like, we should be above all this. He's a rabbi. He's teaching people about our religion. Why is he eating with scum? When Jesus said this, he, or when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then they added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. He's telling the religious leaders, you need to go read your Bible all over again and think about what this actually means. <laughs> God wants you to show mercy over going through your religious rituals. God wants you to show mercy. Uh, for I have come to call those, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And I think we need to think about which camp we're in. Do we think we're righteous or do we know we're sinners? It's a very fine line because we can be striving for righteousness, but know that we're sinners. 
we can know really where the baseline is, where the starting point is, and be aware of that. If we don't know we have need for a savior, why do we need a savior? We have to be aware of our need for him. Then skip down to verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. There it is again, announcing the good news. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. These people are ready to come into the kingdom, but there's no one here to help them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to see more workers into the fields. That word send, the original word for it is where we get the word mission or missionary. So that he will send workers into the field. A missionary is someone who is sent by God. It's not just someone who raises money and goes overseas to a little hut in Africa. That is also a missionary. They are sent far from here, right? But it is also anyone who is sent by Jesus into the work of Jesus to join the kingdom work of Jesus. That is a missionary. And last verse here for a little bit, Matthew 10, 1 through 8. Anyone who is sent, keep that in mind as you listen to this. Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. Simon, also Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, give as freely as you have received. So they were sent. Jesus worked with them. Jesus trained them. Jesus taught them. And then they were sent. I misspoke. I have one more passage for you. Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew. So we've kind of skipped our way through Matthew here. I hope you're seeing some patterns. The 11 disciples, uh, Judas betrayed them, so now there's 11, left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's coming in hot, very authoritarian. I am in charge here. All of heaven, all of earth, spiritual, natural, all of it. And some of us immediately buck up to authority. And Jesus is like, I am the authority period. And then he says this, therefore, he gives them the task. I have all authority. Here's the task. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. That's what we call the Great Commission. This is the mission for all of us. So now we are officially all sent. We are all on mission. We are all missionaries. And then here it is. This is the soft. He comes in hard. He comes in hot as the authoritarian, and then he says, be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I have all authority, I'm commanding you, but in my authority, I'm with you always. So now me with my authority is with you as you go and fulfill the mission I'm sending you on. So are we seeing a pattern in these stories as we skip through these stories of Jesus with his disciples, of Jesus with those asking various questions, of Jesus with those doubting or skeptical? We see that he's more than just a rabbi or a teacher. He's a Messiah. He's a savior sent to bring the kingdom of God in this earth. 
we see that disciples start to follow Jesus and copy his lifestyle, and then they're changed. We see that Jesus then tells them to start doing the work of the kingdom. So first they're copying his lifestyle. They become to be changed, and then Jesus tells them to start doing it. He sends them out. And then they'll come back and they'll debrief with Jesus. There's a story in there that we didn't go over where they were sent out two by two. He gave them instruction and they came back. He's like, okay, guys, let's debrief. How did it go with the demon? Let me know. How did it go? How did it go with the sick person over there? How did it go with the dead kid? Let us refresh and see how it all went. He's like, I sent you out to go do this. How did it go? Let's debrief. Let's talk about it. Let's tweak some things. Let's troubleshoot. Let's brainstorm. Let's get through this, right? He goes and debriefs. And then years in, he says, you're ready. Now go and make disciples. At the very end, you're ready now. You go. You're my disciples. I've made disciples. Now you go make disciples. And that's the mission we're all sent on. Now you go. After you've gone through this process, now you go and make disciples. Social theory says four stages to apprenticeship. If you've been in any sort of like business-esque trainings, you may be familiar with this or read certain leadership books. And it says this, there's always a first step in training someone. The first one is I do, you watch. I'm gonna do what we do, you watch me. This is how we train people. If you've been through training, you've probably seen something like this or participated in something like this. Step two, I do, now you help me do it. So I'm going to be doing the job that I'm training you on. You're going to help me. I'm the main one getting it done to make sure it gets done right, but you're going to help me do this. Number three is you do it. You're the main point person. I'm going to help you. I'm going to assist you in it just to kind of be here as backup and extra eyes. And then the last one is you do, I watch. So I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to let you make your mistakes. We're going to come back and debrief, right? That's what we do. We go out and... Uh, then I watch, you do, I watch. The end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus or training under Jesus or following Jesus is to do what he did. That's the end goal. That is the um, means to an end of everything we're talking about. The end goal is to be able to do what he did. And don't miss this. If you're an apprentice to Jesus, if you are following him, your goal is to grow over time into a person who can carry on the work of Jesus. That doesn't mean being a good and moral person. You do not have to be a follower of Jesus to be a good and moral person. We know lots of people who do not believe in Jesus, and they are good people, right? We know those people. They are good people. They are moral. They are upstanding citizens. God calls us to a higher standard. There's got to be something that's different having the God of eternity in our lives. So, I've got on your notes, and we're going to have it on the screen, 10 categories of Jesus' work. You can pretty much take what he did through the Gospels, through his time on earth, and summarize it into these 10 types of Jesus' work. Number one, he preached the Gospel. Does that mean everyone needs to learn how to write sermons and stand on a stage and preach, preach? No, not necessarily. You can preach with your life. You can preach by talking to someone one-on-one. -on -one. You do not need to necessarily have a mic to preach the gospel. You know the gospel and you preach to others. The kingdom of God is here. This is the kingdom life he has on offer. Number two is teaching the way. What is the way of Jesus? This is the whole thing we've been talking about in this series. The way of Jesus, the things that he did, the practices, the habits, the lifestyle that he walked. I'm learning that, and I'm going to teach you how to do it along with me. I'm going to teach you how to pray like Jesus taught me or like someone else taught me. I'm going to teach you how to pray for others, how to read your Bible and get something out of it. I'm going to teach you how to do these things. Number three, healing the sick. 
We are able to do what Jesus, now a lot of us in this next one is casting out demons. And we're all like, nope, done. Not messing with that. It's Halloween weekend. We don't play with that. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I'll tell you right now, Jesus was not afraid of demons. He was not. He called them out. And uh, he also not acknowledged that there were like different rankings of demon possession that required different preparation for them. So I'm not saying like walk out tomorrow and your kid's throwing a tantrum and you're like, I rebuke you, Satan. I cast out all the demons. No, you need to get some training. You need to pray up. You need to talk to someone who like knows. How. We got to be trained in all of these things. Okay. We don't just jump in to all of this. We be with Jesus. We become like Jesus. We do what he did. But anyway, we're at healing the sick and casting out demons. And these are the ones where we're like, nope, nope. These are this, I don't know if this happens anymore. Jesus was fully God, so that's why he was able to do these things. But that logic falls off because his disciples and Paul also did these things. <laughs> Followers of Jesus, after Jesus was off the scene, physically not on earth anymore, there were regular old uneducated ordinary humans who cast out demons and healed the sick and did the rest of the list that we're going to talk about. That means it is still available for you and I to be able to do even when we are not fully God or even partially God, right? We're going to get more into that in a minute. Number five is to do justice. You see an injustice? Do justice. What can you do to bring justice to the situation? What is your part to play? Peacemaking. We are to be peacemakers. There's a special blessing on those who can bring peace. That means we're not to stir the pot. We're not to egg people on. We are to bring peace. Number seven is prophesying. Number uh, eight is praying. Prophesying is just, don't get all freaked out by that one either. Prophesying is speaking on behalf of God. God's told you something, you're sharing it with someone else. You're just speaking on behalf of God. He's given you a message to share. And out of all the traditionally thought of spiritual gifts, Prophesying is the one that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who taught on the spiritual gift, said, everyone should pray for the gift of prophecy. Out of all the spiritual gifts you can think of, he said, everyone should pray for. He didn't say, I would like it if you all did, because he said that a couple times to other, about other spiritual gifts. He said, everyone should pray for the gift of prophecy, that God would speak to me a message that he would like relate on to someone else. That's part of making disciples, that we're able to relay messages on to others. Eight is praying. Nine is eating and drinking with people far from God. Ten is standing up against religious and political corruption. These are the things Jesus did day in, day out. These are the things he trained his disciples to do. These are the things he told us to go do. This is our end goal, to be able to live a lifestyle where we are people who do these things. Anytime we talk about Jesus as the example of how to live or becoming like him in his lifestyle, living like him again, it's that, well, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. That's why he can do all these things. But here's the thing. I want to make sure I don't miss anything because this is important. In the Enlightenment era, let's go back to like uh, history class, okay? We had the Enlightenment era. We stopped reading the Gospels then as a new template of how to live and more of just proof that that was God. Like, oh, he did the supernatural. He did miracles. That's proof that he's God. Before that, it was, we read it as a template. Hello? Hello? Oh, I thought it went out for a second. Um, before that, it was a template of how to live. 
not just proof that he was God. But the writers of the Bible, if you go through and read your Bible, when you're reading, notice this. They never make a difference between the natural and the supernatural. They never specify, well, this one is supernatural and this one is natural. They don't distinguish. It is all the Holy Spirit, the kingdom at work in us in this realm. It is all, we are spiritual beings. We have spirits and we are in the natural realm. That means we are simultaneously in the spiritual and the natural realm at all times because that's how we were created. Just because we don't live acknowledging that doesn't mean it's not true. The problem is that the disciples did almost all the same miracles, if not all the same miracles, that Jesus did. And we don't say, well, they're God. So that means we are equipped to do the same thing. Jesus did Jesus did all he did as a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit. When he decided to come down as an infant, he decided, I'm going to lay down the God card. And I'm going to live this life. I mean, he spent 30 years in obscurity. We hear one little story about him getting lost at like a festival when he was 12. And he was off like teaching the Pharisees about the Bible um, at 12 years old. But that's the only story we get from birth, little blip at 12 years old, nothing again till 30. 30 years, the first 30 years of his life. What was he doing? We don't know. He was just being human, growing up, studying, learning, praying. He was, you know, being with God like we're supposed to do, becoming himself, who he was, like we're supposed to become like Jesus. In those 30 years, then he started doing what Jesus did on this earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He went into the wilderness for 40 days before he started his ministry. He prayed, he was tempted, he overcame, he immediately came out of there and was like, man, I stink of 40 days in the wilderness, I need to get baptized. So then he goes and gets baptized, and when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit comes to him. He lived his life as a human, fully human, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are fully human. And he sent them, he said, now go into all the world and make disciples. But first, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem for 50 days. He didn't say 50 days, but it was 50 days. I want you to wait in Jerusalem until I send you the Holy Spirit as your helper. So yes, this is your mission, but until you go do that mission, before you can go do that mission, you need the Holy Spirit to empower you. And so they waited, and the Holy Spirit came down and empowered them and gave them boldness. And Peter, who denied Jesus three times, who was like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, no. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came down, and Peter preached a message where 3,000 people got saved. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the filling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is power and boldness. That's what it's about. That's what it's for. And so we need, we are now able to be fully human as we are already here. We've all got that check done. Fully human, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then we can do what Jesus did. The problem is we, leave in, we live in a complex and challenging moment of cultural time. 10 years ago, I did not have a smartphone. I was like actively resisting the smartphone. Then I started dating Kyle, and Kyle's like, iPhone! And so we got an iPhone. Uh, so then I got an iPhone. Uh, but anyway, 10 years ago, I didn't even have a smartphone. Probably most of you in this room didn't either, unless you were Kyle Sadler or someone like him who was just like, yes, I'm standing in line for the iPhone. Did you ever do that? No, he didn't, okay. I could see him doing it. Now we have the internet, 
Now we're over busy. Now if you have like a weird scratchy throat you've never experienced before, you just Google it. Like you go to symptom checker and click on what part of the body it is and exactly what it is and check everything. Like you don't even need to go to the doctor anymore. Just read it on Google. That's what I do for like all my pregnancy symptoms. I'm like, is this normal? Okay, we are good to go. Last night I was like, is 11 weeks too early to feel the baby kick? They're like, yeah, you probably are just bloated. I'm like, great, great, thank you. But it feels like a baby, okay? It feels like a baby. So all you have to do, it's at your fingertips anytime you want. We have the internet, we're over busy, we're double booking, overlap booking, everything in our lives, kids appointments. Uh, mixed with work, mixed with all the house chores we got to get done, mixed with any sort of relationships we're trying to keep up on. And then, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be with Jesus. That's the afterthought. Like, okay, where can I pencil you in, Lord, in the overwhelming of everything? We've become a post-Christian culture. We're a reaction against Christian culture. We are no longer in Christian culture. We are post-Christian. Christian culture. And normally we are a few years behind wherever Europe goes. Europe has been a post-Christian culture for a long time. Then Canada was post-Christian culture. Now we're post-Christian culture. And what that means is, as we do, pendulum swing, right? Anyone remember being a teenager or having teenagers? Our current culture is like a rebellious teenager rebelling against everything their parents told them to do. They grew up Christian culture, maybe, depending on your age, because the youngest in here did not grow up in a Christian culture. I grew up in a like middle of the road, exiting Christian culture into post-Christian culture. Grew up in a Christian culture, and now we're like, no, we're anti-Christian. They just hate everyone. They're picketing everything. They're horrible. All of their policies are off. They hate people. That is what the reputation of Christians are. So they're like a rebellious teenager flip-flopping all the way to the other side. But here's a working definition of what church should be. A community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. It's not that, oh, we need to go back 10, 20, 50 years and be like that. Let's go back to Jesus' template and the first church and then apply those into this post-culture, post-Christian culture that we live in. We need to go back to the plan A template, not what's transpired over the past 2,000 years and just rewind it a little bit. We need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the, anyone remember like Blockbuster, be kind, please rewind? Anyone? Okay, I was just on the tail end of that part of culture. Didn't have that for very long before it was Redbox. But I do remember that. What if someone was not kind and did not rewind, and you got the VHS, and you just rewound about 30 minutes of a two-hour movie? Is that satisfying to just watch the, I mean, some of you are crazy cuckoo bananas, and you like to read the end of the book or watch the end of the movie to know the ending before you watch the whole thing. Crazy, I don't even care about the movie or the book anymore if I know what happens in the end. That doesn't make no sense to me. But really, you just rewind 30 minutes and okay, we'll start here, that's a great starting point. No, you go back all the way to the beginning. What set the stage? What's the background of everyone? Where's everyone coming from so I can see what the growth does over time, but where is the starting point? Where is the launching pad? And that's what we get when we go all the way back to Jesus. We have four books of the Bible dedicated to the retelling of his life here on earth. And it was meant to be read as a template of how to live. 
And then Acts is all about the first church and what they did. A whole book dedicated to the early church. It says in here that we're seeking to discover, in this definition, we're seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus. We're seeking because we're still in process. And we're always going to be still in process. Process not complete till we're entered, entered into heaven. But we're still in process. We're still working on it. So let's get on to the points. That was a really long setup, but the setup's important. So to grow into the kind of person that can do what Jesus did. To grow into that person. It's not that you are not a person who can cast out demons, heal the sick, pray and prophesy and all these things. It's that you're not that person yet. Go through a training process of apprenticing to Jesus, being like him, being with him, learning his ways. Number one, changing to become like Jesus takes teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit. Were those all blanks? I don't remember if I put them all as blanks, so I will give you some time to say it again and fill in all those blanks. Changing to become like Jesus. These are all important, which is why I made them blanks. Changing to become like Jesus takes teaching. Remember he said, I'll come make you fishers of men. I'll come make you great teachers. Teaching, practice, practicing the lifestyle, community, intentional relationships with people, and the Holy Spirit, that empowerment that he wouldn't let us leave to go fulfill the mission until we got. And the Holy Spirit. Changing to become like Jesus takes those things. We talked about that in last week's message. So if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go victoryfaithchurch.online. Victoryfaith.online. Sorry, I just type in V-I-C and it autofills for me, so I don't have it memorized. Victoryfaith.online, go, go to messages and listen to last week's message because we talked about the four ways that we think we're formed and change, but these are the four ways we actually do. So that kind of fills in point one for you, what we talked about last week. So number two, know your stage of discipleship and season of life. Know your stage of discipleship and your season of life. Are you in a place where you are still working on hearing his voice. You are still working on taking on some of his practices. You haven't really started doing that yet. It's not that these three things are a three-step formula. Well, you have to be with Jesus and be perfect at it first, and then you can move on to becoming like him and being transformed, and then you can start doing the things he said. That's not it. We're going to flow through them all the time, but we want to start with a firm foundation of I've got a handle. I'm not perfect, but I've got a handle on being with Jesus, on spending time with him. And in that process, then I start being like him. I start doing these practices that change my life. And then because I'm already doing these practices and I'm just naturally being changed by living the lifestyle of a savior, then I'm gonna naturally start to be able to do things. God's gonna start speaking to me messages for other people. God's going to start teaching me how to pray, showing me how to pray, because I'm living in community with people who are further down in their practice of prayer. Because of that, I'm going to be able to pray better, to do these things more. And then you naturally start to do what Jesus did. It's not a three-step formula, but it is goals ordered in a certain way that helps us to grow. Others of you have the being with Jesus part down. You just love it. You're good at it. It's the best time of your day. You do it every day. You're consistent. And you are, but you're starting this process of truly being transformed. Like you, you just love just sitting with Jesus. You can just sit with Jesus all day. It's like, I don't need to go out and cast out any demons. I'm just sitting here in my little bubble. Just me and Jesus all day with my worship music and my Bible on audio. I don't even have to read. I'm just going to sit here with Jesus all day. But we need to be transformed 
into someone who becomes like Jesus. Jesus took times away to be with the Father. Jesus said no to ministry sometimes to be with the Father. Jesus spent 40 days in prayer and fasting before starting his ministry, but then he went and did the ministry. He did both. He did both of those things. And we've got to have a balance on that like uh, he did. Some of you are saying, well, I've been really freed. I've been transformed by him. So now it's time for me to step into my identity and calling. If that's you, I would really encourage you, if you find yourself in that stage, to go to Growth Track. Again, it's only about 30 minutes. This is the shortest step of all of them. Um, we haven't always done this step. So some of you may have done it. A lot of you probably haven't. Where it teaches you what servant leadership is like and how to really step into a calling and identity. Um, but uh, we need to step into that calling and identity and be sent and be the missionaries. It doesn't mean you need to wait 10 years before you jump in like, no, I can't serve at Victory Faith because I just need to be with Jesus for about five years first. Like, no, we want you to be with Jesus, and then you're becoming like Jesus, and then you come to church and you serve other people because that's what Jesus did, and that's the end goal is to be able to do what Jesus did. So we want you to still serve. You don't have to be perfect, right? You don't have to, you don't have to like come up here with a mic and preach. Please don't if you're just learning how to become like Jesus. I'm not going to give you the mic yet. Because you need to know who Jesus is first to be able to teach other people who Jesus is, right? But Jesus, uh, we need to, oh, hold on on this note. Because earlier I kind of made fun a little bit of the stage of life I'm in. Where I'm like, well, you know, I can't, I can't be with Jesus because I've got toddlers and I've got kids pulling on me. And I've got all these activities for kids and all these other things. That's part of knowing your season though, Right? So it doesn't mean I'm going to have the time to three hours a day have silence and solitude. That'd be glorious. But no, I don't have that time right now. But can I get up 10 minutes before my kids? Yep. Do I put them to bed at a very decent hour so that I have time before I go to sleep? Check. I do that. But do I spend that time being with Jesus? That's the growth point. To consistently dedicate that time to Jesus. So I can still do it. I can practice his presence throughout the day. I can look at my child as Jesus looked at the little children. I can practice Jesus' lifestyle through my season. But to know what kinds of standards and expectations you're putting on yourself based on your season that you're in. So a better question than the what would Jesus do question is what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were my stage of life? If he were a mom, if he were single, well, he was, so that one's easy to check off. If he were a man or a woman, if he were a teenager, or if he were in retirement, if, he, if Jesus was in my stage of life, he was my race, this time period, this country, what would Jesus do if he were me? And how do we live out the kingdom life in this context he's built us into, in this place that he's planted us in and called us to? Number three, don't underestimate the power of practicing the way of Jesus together in community. We're going to talk about this in a whole series at the beginning of the year because it's so important how we change and how we're truly transformed. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 says, Dear friends, I warn you as, quote, temporary residents and foreigners, it says, to keep away from worldly desires. He's saying this world, this planet is not your home. Heaven and eternity is your home. So right now we're living 
as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. He has this vision of church in community living the way of Jesus in such a way it was so compelling that people flocked to Peter when he preached this vision. They flocked to him to live this way. They wanted to live this way. Dallas Willard has a quote that says this, there's a special evangelistic work to be done, of course, that is going out to reach the lost, and there are special callings to it. But if those churches really are enjoying fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic instead of forced. The local assembly for its part can then become an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. He's talking this community, this church will be a school of life for a disciple is but a pupil, a student where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practiced and mastered under those who have themselves mastered them through practice. Only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. We have to practice. We have to learn. We have to be in community helping each other build this up. And then all the outreach is natural. It's automatic. It has to happen. It's unstoppable because we all are bursting to do what Jesus did. Number four is start with the basics. For example, probably the easiest one on the list, eat and drink with people far from God. Pretty, could be pretty easy. Hopefully, all of us know someone who is not in a relationship with Jesus yet. The question is, how many of us are putting ourselves out there to show them hospitality? That's another easy one. Practice hospitality. In Romans chapter 12, it's a command. Command of the way of Jesus is to be hospitable to practice hospitality, to open up our home, to create warm environments, places, to be hospitable. What if, Christians, what if our church, what if Victory Faith, here in little old Fort Madison, Iowa, what if we were known all around the region? What if we were known for radical hospitality? To eat, to celebrate, to have community together, where people belong and are welcomed, no matter whether they're far from God or not. Just that alone, the easiest of the steps, would be huge. It would be transformational, and it would open the idea to so much else. The command to love your neighbor is literal. It's not just some abstract idea of love. Okay, generally have positive feelings towards someone. Don't actively try to kill them. That's not what love means. Your neighbor isn't just, you know, the general everyone, although it applies. But he's literally saying, love your neighbor. And so as I was preparing this message, I was like, do I know the names of the people who live next to me, across the street from me? Have I opened my doors to them? Have I actively shown them love? Have I actively worked to care for them? And then number five, Liz, if you could come up, is live in the moment. Live in the moment. This list isn't a schedule. You have a schedule. Hopefully you're making it. If you're not, the rest of the world is making it for you. But you already have a schedule. This isn't a schedule. It's not a list you put in, okay, at 2 o'clock, we're going to pray. At 4 p.m., we're going to prophesy. No, we're not doing that. It's all an interruption to your daily life. Most miracle stories in the Gospels of Jesus were interruptions. As he was going, on his way, someone touched the hem of his garment. He felt power go out of him. Someone came up 
with an epileptic son or daughter to be prayed for. Someone came up with someone demon-possessed to be set free. Someone said, my son is dying. Can you come with me? As he was going, go into all the world. It can also be translated, as you are going. As you are going. Taking your dog to the groomers, in the pickup line, the carpool line, dropping your kids off at practice, grocery shopping, the people in line with you at the grocery store, pumping gas, as you are going. God, help me to have eyes to see what you're doing and to join in. Who knows what God is waiting to do in you and through you. The thing is that's most important is all of us can see what God is up to and we can join in. And if we feel like we can't see what God is up to, we be with Jesus. Then we'll become like Jesus. Then we will see what God's up to and we will join in to do what he did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for this kingdom life that you have on offer for all of us. I pray that you would stir up our hearts to want that, to long for that, to long to do the things that you do, but to be patient in the training, to truly apprentice ourselves to you, to follow you, to learn you, to know you, to love you. We love you so much, Jesus, and we just want to be with you. With everyone's head still bowed and eyes still closed, I want to ask if there's anyone here who has not started a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you think you might have years ago, but there hasn't been a relationship with Jesus in a while now. If you want to make that decision today to follow Jesus truly, to have a relationship with him, on the count of three, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand just as a first step to kind of cross that line for you. On the count of three, if that's you, I want a relationship with Jesus today. One, two, three. Raise your hands up if that's you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, guys. You can put your hands down. If you raised your hand or maybe earlier after worship, you put your hands out and you said you wanted Jesus to enter your life. Maybe that was the first time. Or maybe just in your heart, you didn't raise your hand, but you know that's you. You couldn't bring yourself to raise your hand, but you know that's you. We're all going to say this prayer together. Just as, for those of us who are already in a relationship as a confirmation, as a continuation, but for those of us rededicating our lives or giving our lives to him for the first time, repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you love me. Please forgive me of my sins. Set me free in you. Help me to love you to be like you 